G'day, it's Will Anderson here from the title of the podcast. Uh, hello, welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. How does it work? Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from yeah, the title of the podcast. That is the normal introduction, isn't it? Uh, so anyway, <laughs> good start, Ando. Uh, so I've not done the podcast for a few months uh, because I cracked the shits with it. Uh, but I'm back for one very special episode, which is this one that you're about to listen to. Uh, Damien Callanan is our guest on the show today and um, our guest, well, he is our guest, I suppose. Uh, he's my guest and also your guest if you're listening. Um, I've known Damo for ooh, 20 plus years and uh, have always been a, a, a huge admirer of his work. He has a brand new film called The Merger, which is based on a one-man show that he did, uh, which is made into an Australian movie. Uh, and I wanted to do this podcast as a one-off, uh, even though I've quit. I'm back. <laughs> I'm back for one episode because I think that Damo's film uh, is going to be really amazing. I think Damien is amazing. Uh, I think it's a really compelling, interesting story and uh, I, I want it to be supported as much as possible. So I have done this podcast as a one-off. I'm still on a break. Uh, here's what's going to happen. Uh, Podcast Mike uh, is going to put together some theme episodes. Uh, he's going to go back through and has been going back through old episodes of the podcast and putting together some themes around, you know, love and death and work and uh, all sorts of things with different people. So he's going to put those out um, as a series, uh, which I think is going to be really fantastic. And, um, you know, we'll give people an opportunity perhaps to hear some of, you know, some voices of podcasts they haven't had a listen to. And maybe you'll go back and explore those podcasts and have a listen along the way. Uh, maybe uh, get interested in somebody that you don't think you're interested in. Um, and then at the end of that, you know, maybe around October, um, uh, we might look at coming back and doing the podcast again on a regular basis. Um, but I'm still on a break. I'm still a bit grumpy with it. Um, but this is my exception for the time being. Uh, in October, I am doing uh, two shows at the Sydney Opera House in the concert hall, the big uh, main room there. My show is called We're Legal. Uh, it is my favourite show I've ever done. Uh, Justin Hamilton is doing support. Uh, the first show is increasingly close to selling out. Uh, the second show, uh, still uh, plenty of tickets available, and that'll be a really fun show because no time restriction in the second show. So uh, the show is, uh, it's fair to say that We're Legal has grown from a 60 minute show to some nights a 90 minute show so i don't have time to do 90 minutes at the first show at the opera house second show yeah i can take my time anyway maybe you don't want longer maybe you just want to come to the more concise uh, directed first show anyway the point being i'm rambling on too much uh, i'm terrible at this but this is the intro for damien cullen and his movie is called the merger i want you to go and see it i want you to go and support it and um i hope that you're really going to enjoy this episode with Damien and um, I'll see you again in October-ish. Um, you know, depending on, I don't know, maybe I'll run in. Anyway, whatever. I'm not going to make any plans. I'm making no plans. There'll be some best ofs. Oh, I've got other tours. Why am I not even mentioning this? Uh, Pakenham, uh, Bendigo? Pakenham, Bendigo, Noosa and Townsville. Uh, those shows are also on sale now and there will be some other dates to come. Uh, all right, enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. Now... 
you're not really meant to be hearing this episode because I'm on a break. Uh, my guest probably doesn't know this, but I have a complicated relationship with this podcast. It often causes me trouble and um, it's quite labor intensive to do and it costs me money to pay like, you know, the artists and the people who edit it. And look, sometimes the hassle gets too much and I have these little artistic huffy fits that you can only have about a free project mm. and I you know I, I overanalyze my own mind and I send myself a great big internal dialogue and I, I I quit in a huff and so I've been in a period where I've quit in a huff for a while and I was looking to sort of you know around October um, come back I, I needed a break I just needed to walk away mm. reassess my relationship with this podcast and then come back to it. I wanted to think about why I did this podcast and what it was really about. And then I was on Facebook and I started to seeing that a friend of mine, uh, a guy that I've known for a very long time, you know, uh, through the stand-up comedy world, had made a film of a one-man show that he uh, had performed and then developed into a film. And I watched the trailer and it just looked amazing it, it was like one of those things where I was like oh man this looks really funny but this looks like an an amazing story and it, it, a story that perhaps comedy can tell in a way that you know other takes on this subject matter couldn't I'm trying to be vaguely uh, deliberately vague or vaguely deliberate I'm not sure which of the two at this point <laughs> normally I do this intro by myself and I realize now I'm why I do it. that because yeah. it's awkward I'm to be in, in front of the guests and do this um, yeah, so I'm, anyway, not here. I'm not here yet yes the yeah. point is unnamed guests at this point <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that I saw this thing and I just went oh that's what it is the, the reason that I did this podcast in the first place was that I have all these amazing friends or people that I know that um, are doing the, this amazing work and maybe that this podcast could be a place that people could learn about those people and learn about that work and maybe learn something about those people here that they couldn't learn anywhere else that might get them more engaged or interested in the piece of work that they had produced, whatever that was. And so I wanted to do the podcast again. I stopped looking for a reason to do the podcast again. I stopped tormenting myself with going... What is this podcast about? What am I trying to achieve? What is it going to be when I come back? How am I going to handle it? And realized that the reason I started in the first place was I wanted to talk to my interesting friends about the interesting things they did and then ask them, you know, what they thought about life. So uh, the podcast is back for one episode at the moment, but it was one that fit the criteria of what the podcast is all about more than anything. So I thank our, our guest um, and I guess this is the reason I wanted to say it in front of you <laughs> rather than normally behind your back like I would safely do in my office late at night one night when someone's bugging me for an intro to this episode was I'm glad you're here because you reminded me of the reason that I do this podcast in the first place so the way the podcast starts is by me saying who are you who are you uh, my name is Damien Callanan uh, and Damien, do you yeah. have a philosophy? This is the basic premise this the of, this, yeah, of this podcast is who are you and do you have a philosophy? Yeah, I've, I've, there's a lot of pressure on this now because if I if I stuff this up, you might go back into hiatus again. Might be a relief for me. Could be, could be for me. Could be. I could bury this thing in 12 minutes. Could go either way. Maybe, um, that, maybe that's why I invited you. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I had that maybe feeling. Like, you know what? You know like, who is going to bury this? <laughs> Callanan. Callanan's a man. I'll bring him in. <laughs> He will torpedo it in a second. <laughs> uh, if I have a philosophy, uh, well, it would be, and it kind of always has been, empathy is my main drive. And I've, I, I kind of came out of, you know, an all-boys Christian Brothers education 
went into kind of was in Catholic institutions for the first 30, 30 years of my life. And um, my first year of teaching, I, got, I got, ended up in Darwin. And um, I found myself for the first time completely outside my comfort zone, um, hanging out with, with different... I was, a, I was a classic Melbourne indie music snob who just happened to go to a Catholic teacher's college. Wasn't you know, wasn't really the kind of thing I dropped at the jump club, watching the models. And I got to Darwin all of a sudden. I was just hanging out with, you know, all types of people. And I worked out that to not to not judge people because they were different. And I was, you know, I was playing footy with in, half my footy team were Indigenous. My class was made up of fourteen different nationalities. And I just kind of realised. I guess I'd been brought up well by my parents to be accepting and open and tolerant, but. I kind of flicked a switch, and on my very first week of living in Darwin, I was billeted with a family who were bankers from Adelaide. Most of the industries in Darwin were Adelaide-based. And uh, after a day, I realised these people were horrifically racist. <laughs> like, on a, you know, like, you know, you just, all of a sudden you just realise, yeah, oh, hang on, I didn't notice you guys wearing Nazi uniforms. That's... And but were they racist in? Uh, so what era is this? What, what we're you, talking nineteen eighty six. Okay, so yeah. what sort of racist are they at that point? Because, um, you know, uh, spoiler alert for anyone who's listening to this in nineteen eighty six, um, we're still racist. We're still racist. Uh, we're still doing yeah. a lot of really racist things. But I think that we've got an increased understanding yep. in this year of what what is and isn't racist. Like what I would have considered to be racist in 1986 yeah, is very yeah, different sure. to what I consider to be racist. Well, they now. helped, they kind of helped my, form my opinion really, because I'd never, I'd never met an indigenous Australian mm. as a 21 year old. What had you Melbourne. heard up until that point? If um, you don't mind me asking that question. That's a good question. I guess I didn't really even think about it. To be honest, it wasn't uh you know, it was touched on a little bit in my education degree. At school at all? Not Yeah, not mentioned at school really. I mean, it's amazing. A lot of, we have a lot of overseas listeners yeah. to the podcast and, you know, it's amazing sometimes when you hear that and are reminded of that, which we have the world's oldest living surviving culture in Australia, yep. 60 to 80,000 years old in this country. And we go to school in this country and yep. learn very little about Absolutely. Well, when I was at primary school in the 70s, um, you might have done a project on Aborigines and it was it was exactly as you think. You'd just be cutting out pictures of stereotypical um, tribal situations. And, you know, it was never uh, in, uh, immersed into other aspects of the curriculum. By the time I became a teacher, that was what was happening. In fact, at one point I was working in a pilot program um, that integrated all all the subjects you know, in kind of lower secondary education, and we were part of it was to make Indigenous studies part of every subject, so it wasn't just brought up as a single standalone subject. So yeah, I guess these their their race their racism was this: it was uh, the guy who I was living with taking me to the pub, and I'm just going, ah, oh, I brought you here because this is the Coons pub. And um, but we're going to sit in the we're going to sit in the good bar, and just dropping that kind of stuff on me. And for overseas folk, Coon is probably the worst Australian, specifically Australian insult. To Don't an, be misled by the fact that we also have a popular brand of great cheese, cheese named yeah. 
raccoon. They've never, and they've suffered ever since. Yeah, association. But um, yeah, it's a horrible word. It's, yeah, it's it like <clears throat> I was actually just this morning being told a story about a footballer friend of mine who's uh, talking about the, that same idea of casual racism, and they were in Alice Springs or Darwin, but they were certainly yeah. up north as well, playing an exhibition game of football team uh, football, and uh, Adam Cooney whose nickname is Coons. Yeah. Uh, well, the short, you know, in the Australian way, that's what they'd cheer. Yeah. Um, Could have and, been Kuno, but yeah, it's Coons. Right. Yeah. And, um, but I don't think with any sort of, you know, we're mocking some sort of racial, yeah. but even when we're saying it now, I'm yeah. like, I am so uncomfortable with even to tell this story, having yeah. to say the word. I think it's horrible. I won't buy the cheese on principle. Like, yeah. and I know there's no association, but I'm just like, we shouldn't still have that. Yeah. I just feel like, you know, a delicious cheese shouldn't be named after something that can be computed. Everything could be linguistically associated, you know. Bega might be a, you know, Maltese word for a, a large-breasted woman. We don't know. Yeah, but we do yeah. know this we one. We do know this one. <laughs> We're certain about this one. Like, so that would be the difference <laughs> be. in the conversation. Yeah. But they said, oh, there's... So the, the, the footballer said, there's Coons, their friend, playing tennis. And the driver literally just said, oh, no, you'll see him everywhere up here, mate, doing everything. And they, in that moment, were like, oh, no, he didn't even think. And didn't think, I can't say this in front of other people. Yeah. Or I can't. Because here's the thing. Even if you believe that or use that around your friends who also use that word. Yeah. Just the bare arrogance or obliviousness to other people not feeling comfortable with that word yeah. in that story, you know? The idea that he would immediately think that's what... Totally, yeah. And that kind of... <sighs> anyway, that let's nudge... stop talking about this. This that... is horrible. <laughs> no, the... well, anyway, it was that nudge, no. nudge, wink, wink yeah. racism. So, like, yeah. you, you will believe this too. And I also recognise that it was willful racism because these people didn't have to... to they, they could have taken the effort to, to learn about the culture and what was going on there. But they were submitting to all the, you know, the tropes of... Oh, they get money and they get, you know, get given free cars and we've got to pay for our four-wheel drives. And these guys were, you know, wealthy middle-class people who had yeah. no, no reason. So I was immersed in that quite young and I remember by the end of that year kind of realising that to get by in life you needed to get on with all people and also by getting to know those people, I stopped judging them. Yeah. Um, empathy is uh, something that I do associate with your work and let's start there because I think it's a good place to start because I think it is something that makes your work a bit distinctive and different to what necessarily yeah you often work in spaces you know stand-up spaces or comedy festival spaces or you're part of comedy lineups and you know what you do you know fits within that world and works within that world but there's also a sense of that you're off doing something slightly different to what other people are doing because particularly for a while comedy, yeah, empathy and comedy weren't things that were necessarily known for being hand in hand with each other. I think, you know, you look at the success of Hannah's show and, and, you know, a, a bunch of other shows as well. And I think that empathy and comedy are becoming much more closely linked or recognized as being things that can be closely linked now. But there's certainly been a period of time where your work always I mean, the reason that your characters work so well and the stories that you tell work so well is that you genuinely believe that you have an empathy and affection for those people and those characters, no matter, you know, who they are in the story. You know, they're all actual people rather than just an excuse or reason to get to the next bit or joke. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, um, and I guess the merger, which is the project that yes. you so, alluded yes. to. I alluded, so we might yeah. as well just talk about it. So, you, well, very quickly, yes. I, I, I created a one-man show called The Merger about a fictional football club, country football club. And the, the very quick summation is Troy Carrington, who I play in um, the film. I played all the characters in the one-man show, obviously, thus, one-man show. <laughs> uh, but Troy comes back to town with some um, slight, I guess, left-leaning notions. Yeah. And uh, he recruits refugees um, to play for the team. Yes. So, and Troy's a former AFL, well, yeah. AFL journeyman. Yeah, yeah, 13 games Four clubs, nine years. Yep. <laughs> no household name. Uh, but Troy's also... And this, this has been a delicious thing about doing the film, actually. I've been able to flesh out the backstory of Troy because he's always been just this this notion, this notion of a um, seemingly hick country bloke who uh, is quite erudite and talks about footy trips, but they're to the Mozart Trail from Prague to Vienna and ruling aromatherapy sessions and um so i was able to like pull him apart and work out why is he like that yeah to make him real in the film because on stage uh, it gets to be a lot more you have to be a lot more arch i suppose and that's where the comedy comes from so yeah just before we move on because i love this and i think this is a really cool thing because obviously the the show itself you've you've done for a while yeah um uh, oh, okay. So I'll put it in this context. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, my current show is about being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga. And yeah. uh, it's a true story. And so every night when I tell it and I explore a new bit of it or it becomes bigger mm. or you know, deeper or whatever, it's the most satisfying show I've ever done. I love doing the show because I feel like I'm getting to know me better, you know, yeah, like right. through doing the show, which yeah. is not necessarily... Often it's just me repeating... Often it's almost the opposite, which is yeah. I decide a set of opinions and thoughts in January and then I just reinforce those thoughts in my mind for seven months yeah, right. and then I sit down and come up with some new thoughts. Whereas this is more about yeah. having the opportunity to explore the character, you know, the person in this story because that's yeah. what I'm really exploring. I'm not exploring my entire life. I'm just exploring yeah, yeah. this story more and more. It's a joy. I imagine with a character like that that you've created, was it fun to just have the time and excuse to go, I'm going to work out really, because you didn't know. Like it's no. what it's like you've created a show, but then given it to a whole bunch of other people to like write, and you suddenly yeah. have this opportunity to go. I'm going to go and find out this story, right? Yeah, Is that yeah. exciting. Do you, in the, do you mean in the film iteration? Like well, yes. The, I mean, just yeah. When you, well, Troy's always had. Um, there's been different versions of him because appeared in different right. shows, and and so there's kind of the more you know, stereotypical comedic version of him, which was the first version, which was just him sounding as countries all get out, but telling these ridiculous stories about, you know, um, wearing an elk's head, running out of the Museum of Natural History in Austria with right. toilet paper on fire, hanging out of his ass, singing the Barber of Seville. Just just jokes, really. Yeah, yeah essentially then, just like a simple yeah. contradiction joke. Yeah. You're then taking one thing and another thing that shouldn't exist yeah. together and combine And it worked. And, it, and that's what it starts. Yeah. So that's how he started. Then the next iteration was, okay, he's now coaching a... This was the f- prequel of the merge, which was Sportsman's Night. He's now taken over coaching this country footy club that's just been banned for three years for off-field violence, and he's trying to turn the culture of the club around. Um, so he's kind of in the middle. He's still doing jokes, but he's he's literally trying to massage a deep-seated culture out, spread it out by, by, by affecting the playing list. 
Then there was the merger, which is him further down the track, and now he's uh, he's got this group of men, and he's he's able to shape. He feels like he's able to shape them and introduce the refugees into the story. So it's been really interesting. There's all those different versions of him, but then of course when I put him into a film context, he had to have a he had to have a backstory because all films have a. An, um, a protagonist whose journey we're following and he can't, he has to change. Right. So what I basically had to do is, yeah, like pull him apart, find out who he used to be and why. Cause be, but that, that guy wouldn't really fit in in a town like that. Like in the, in the live show, I was able to make it look like, da-da, here he is. Oh, yeah. God, that guy's clever. Let's get refugees. But in the film, he had to have so much more opposition. So, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was hard. It was the hardest part of the writing of the film by a mile because I had this character I've been doing for so long had to reinvent him he'd never talked to people before and he had to he has to be has to feel real um so the version of Troy on screen and the stage are quite different he's kind of there's a lot lot more of me in this Troy um and that was that was challenging at first because he wasn't as funny right <laughs> like for a while I pulled him apart and he became a bit sad sack it's like oh Jesus and then kind of slowly rebuilt him. But you you couldn't, I mean, and it would have been a mistake to just put the stage show oh, for sure. on film because I was thinking about this. I was The castle was on TV again last night because, you know, why not? Why not? Why yeah. not? Yeah. <laughs> if it, if it's, it's been like since Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. and I think what they think is if it's on, people will watch it and I proved them right by it was on and I decided that I was going to watch it. And of course, because it's such a delightful film yeah. still, you do just end up, you know, you can dip in for 45 minutes and really enjoy yourself. Um, there's lots of jokes in that, but there's not too many joke jokes. Like yeah. there is lots of jokes yeah. or things now feel like jokes, like tell them he's dreaming or whatever. The, the catchphrase have become, stuff, yeah. But they're not really, when you watch the film just as a film, it's very comedic, but they're not, Yeah, you know, here's our joke, here's yeah. our joke, here's our joke. You know, the character's you know, lead the sort of... The, it's funny because you believe the characters. Well, I guess any true and good narrative comedy is like that. Even in a live shows, you, you might not look at them and go, oh, that's that's uh, a classic setup for a joke. It's the comedy came from juxtaposition, culture and sport. And um, and so the film's a bit the same. Yeah, it has to feel... It just has to feel like genuine dialogue. The characters can't feel like... Everyone can't be the funniest person in town, if you're not right. Um, Absolutely. So, and early on, they're like, "Why are you guys? You know, why are you guys in this timber town playing footy? You should all be on the stand-up circuit in Melbourne. You guys are hilarious." But your instinct as a comedian and writer, and you would find the same thing. I would write these scenes, and and in in the film, the biggest difference between the live show and one of the biggest difference between the live show and the film is um, there's a major female character. Um, character of Angie, who's played by Kate Mulvaney in the film. And her character is running a new refugee support centre in the district. And so that's that's how it was a more organic way to get them into the story. But the, the scenes I would have with Kate and I, and it's a romantic relationship that has a slow build, I would be writing these like, you know, like, boom, katish, boom, boom, yeah. boom. And then I had like script consultants going, it's just way too funny, too yeah. quick. They're too comfortable with each other. They look like they've known each other for two years. Then, ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so less jokes, yes, less jokes. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone gave Aaron Sorkin that note ever. <laughs> no. <laughs> but so um, 
Here's uh, what I would like to ask is, so you, you've mentioned refugees, yep. but I actually don't think that we got to the point of explaining to the audience yeah. that you know, Troy uh, is back in this town and uh, the, it's a story about um, the local industry closing down and, yep. and thus it affecting the football club, which to me, I mean, again, this is there are so many reasons I'm interested in this story, but yep. you know, I'm from a tiny timber town. You yeah, know, Hayfield, where yeah, I grew up, is yeah. a timber town and... You know, uh, when they they were going to shut the mill in Hayfield, you know, last year that was the big, you know, or yeah, two right. years ago was the big story. You know, the, you know, the timber you know, workers, you know, protested Parliament House and whatever, and they thought yeah. the whole town would shut down. And of course, if the town shut down, the football club shuts down and the cricket club shuts down. My father, his main recreation and love in his life has been in that one shed at Hayfield on that top overly, they're playing cricket or football for yep. fifty years, sixty years, you know. And it would have just been an absolute no one in the city, no one would have noticed or ever yep. cared. And they would have gone, it's an old industry timber and they shouldn't be doing it anymore and a town yep. closes down and whatever. But to me, you know, that story genuinely affected me. And I you know, obviously in your film without having seen it, only having seen, you know, the trailer that was online, I, I felt an immediate sort of empathy to the story because it felt like the bits of that are going to be familiar to the story you're telling. Yeah. Look, it's, um, I guess it's a sign of good storytelling or that I get a lot of people say, oh, that reminds me of my town or that reminds me of this town. I mean, you've got all these specifics and when I first wrote the Bodgy Creek Football Club, I pictured them as a East Gippsland town. Mm. Uh, it doesn't really matter where they are. But yeah, that's exactly what's happened in the town. The, the timber mill's closed and it's closed, closed because of my character, partly. Yeah. He's come back to the to his old town. He's led a protest um, to save old coop, you know, natural vegetation, native vegetation, and the mills closed. So they hate him, <laughs> like absolutely hate him. And he's become known as town killer. And he's just exiled himself outside of town, just going, "What was I thinking?" Um, and yeah, the town is like the, the they've got a hole in the footy club because there's going to be no more meeting places, you know. Country towns have changed irre irreversibly. I mean, Christianity is on the wane, so the, the church is no longer the place that it was. Um, halls were were big in the sixties and seventies when dances were a thing, but that you know they're still they're still there. Tennis clubs, there's so many. You just, just see tumbleweeds and rusty tennis umpires' chairs. So the footy club's the last Dennis, place left. Dennis and where I'm from, technically, because you know it's really just a farming community. Yeah. But the only two, no shops, but yeah. the only two things it has are a hall and a tennis court. Yeah. So that's it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. I'm actually writing a play about hall committees at the moment, so we'll talk about that later, or, or not. <laughs> probably, we, to be honest, we won't get to it. I haven't finished the thought yet. No, so, exactly. Sorry. But um, yeah, that, that and that was the aim was to find a town. The, the, the town's got problems. So the kind of the last thing they want is refugees coming in as well. Yes. I didn't want to make anything easy in this. So And the empathy comes both ways for people from the, from the left also looking at these people and understanding why they might be against um, the refugees and why they you know, um, wouldn't want them in their community. So, yeah, I wanted it to be tough for people to hate anyone in the film. There's one character who doesn't really come around but again, he makes sense too. He's just, he's just not, he's not a thinker. He's just had those, you know, ideas around him. He's confrontational. But again, you know, he's 
he's play the guy who plays it, Angus McLaren, plays it really well. You kind of still kind of go, you're a bit of a dick, but you're not you're not an asshole. You're just a bit of a dick. I'm interested in the the I mean the refugee story because I mean immigration to Australia is obviously a pretty hot button issue, and then you take it the step further when you talk about you know refugees to this mm. country. There's some real you know horrible. Uh, opinion and invective and you know attitude around you know what can be a difficult thing immigration and mm. and particularly people coming from places that are you know where they have not had the quality of life or structure or education or any of the things you know white health you know access to those things that we just take for granted in this country well in the eastern seaboard you know yeah. or, of this country or whatever you know i understand we have you know a lot of our own problems as well um I I see the success they are in the country. And I've had a theory yep. about immigration and the country that um, I think I might have shared on this podcast before, but I, I, I just want to know what you think about it because, you know, I might be wrong. Maybe I'm completely off the ball. But um, yeah. I think that, in my opinion, that country people feel like they're going to be more resistant to it. But the nature of a country town is... If you are a Sudanese refugee and you um, move into the suburbs of Melbourne, you tend to move to the place where other people who are like you are. And often you can seem like a complete other and people can go about their lives and never meet you. You're just that person who lives across the street and, you know, they judge you on your appearance and the fact that you hang out with other people like you, right? Versus if you're in the country town and you're the Sudanese guy who comes to town, the, the... Coach of the footy club's heard you six foot ten by the time Absolutely. that you landed in town, yeah. you know, and he's down there with a sign up sheet. Particularly in a smaller town, you know, um, and, and and you're right, and they they can cut through a bit quick. I mean, the Billowila story that's happening in Australia at the moment is a is a really good example of it, where um, this Sri Lankan family from memory uh, were resettled and they had their door knocked down at five o'clock in the morning and were. Um, basically dragged away to be deported um, without going into the details of the whys or wherefores, this family had assimilated into this township. The two daughters, I believe, were born in Australia, or at least one of them was. And that community are fighting like tooth and nail to keep them in Australia. And you're right, that would not have happened in um, Ngunnawadding or Vaucluse because suburban dispersed, you know, the, the enclaves that happen in suburbs are much more closed in. Um, and I guess people then get to understand, and that's exactly what the film is trying to do. It's trying to say, if you find out their story, you can't throw out the tropes of their queue jumpers and all that sort of stuff. So we slowly in the film reveal um, Sayyid, the main refugee's character story, and that he's he's spent six years in detention because of the um, the no advantage policy, which was once you were proven to be a refugee, you then have to wait a certain number, of, the same number of years it took to process you to get your family here. And because it took, in his case, it's a fictional story, but this is based on reality. Because it took three years to process, he then had to wait three years to see his family again. So we just reveal all of those stories. And then slowly the main characters who, who didn't have any prior knowledge start to go, oh, that's why they're here. Um, and Tell me, um, when did you know uh, that it was going to be a film or it might be something that could turn into a film? Because you go and you do your stage show yeah, and, yeah. you know, as you said, like earlier, it's in a series of, you know, shows that you've yeah, done. This that's right. character that... is not new. It's, yeah. you know, 
you haven't gone, I'm going to turn each of my stage shows into a movie. Like, oh, how well, do... now, obviously. Well, not yet. Yeah, from now on, of <laughs> yes, course. I of mean, course. without a doubt. Yeah. Now I have a working business model. <laughs> it's a, it's a... You want a Netflix like... special? Oh, I make oh, mine go. into a movie. Yeah. Um, but I when know... did that idea occur? Um, kind of as soon as I made it, in a way, because I got this response... So I was just quick. I was originally commissioned to write a show about racism for regional uh-huh. communities. That's how it started, but then they shut up and just let me do it. It was originally like Victorian Vic Health. They just went go and do it. But as soon as I did the first showing, I had people coming up to me, um, going, "That should be a film. It feels like a film. It's got a very cinematic feel to it because there's a little boy character making a documentary, so he kind of like calls the shots and the scenes, if you like. So. Um, I remember um, Todd Abbott came up to me and went, "Demo, it's got to be a film. Put put that in the back of your head. I know you're busy now doing the comedy festival. It should be a film." So about two years later, I started touring it again, and the same thing was happening. And then the the, the best the best thing happened. Gavin Basketball, good comedian friend, Hobart based. Gavin was the first one and said, "Demo, it should be a film, and I'll help you." So we just started knocking around a draft at that point. It was, you know, it was literally just knocking around a draft. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so I didn't, it wasn't an original plan. And then. So just while we're on that, so yeah. at that step, um, taking a story that had been yours and then collaborating with somebody else, you know, yep. regardless of the fact that, you know, whatever the level of collaboration. Yeah. Um, working by yourself versus working with others is something that I always yeah. uh, like the conversation about. And you've done a lot of both. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to, what do you prefer? Because I imagine sometimes you prefer one over the other and it probably is in direct correlation to the one you've been doing the most yeah. of the other thing. But tell me what the difference is between when you're doing something by yourself versus doing something with other people. Um well, I guess film is almost the complete antithesis because there are so many people involved. But you introduce those people um, in, in a staggered fashion, if you right. like. And um, oh, what's the difference? It's um, you, you do have to let things go a lot more, um, and for the very reason that you're often working with people who know more more than you do. Like I worked with a screen consultant early on. And I had no idea how to structure a film. None. What did you do? Did you like read other films? Did you read any books or did you just think, I'm going to throw myself into it? (laughs) Uh, I had my director kind of throwing me, you know, like articles and um, templates like the castle. He showed me the castle. He said, yeah, 22 minutes this happens. At 27 minutes that happens. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And then the process, I was I was just, you know, with Gavin helping me occasionally reading it and knocking a few words around, kind of came up with a 159-page draft. Now. And I remember the, the extreme consultant just going, start, you just went, Damien, stop writing. <laughs> and uh, he, he was based in London, so we had this guy. I basically did a Skype degree uh-huh. with this guy. Um, and I just learned early on to listen to people and not be not be too reactive. And there'd be there'd be times where someone would say something, and go, no, no, that no. Um, but every time I was met with an impediment or a no, it usually meant I went around and came up with something better. Um, so that that willingness that willingness to 
let other people in your creative process is is imperative. I mean, when you well, way back now. I mean, a long time ago, where you, when you and Lawrence used to do shows together. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it's interesting to me because often, yeah, because you weren't a duo. Right, like you know, sometimes when yeah. people make shows together, they're a duo. You're like Lena and Woodley are a duo, yeah. And then Lena and Woodley go off and do their own things, and they're both great. Yeah. But in in a way, you're kind of like the whole time going, "Oh, it's good that Lena's here, but I wish Woodley was here," or like, yeah, vice versa. Whereas you guys did how many shows did you do together? We did four comedy festival shows. So, like, you know, that's a body of work. Yeah, you know? and a couple of fringes and um. But you also have always, you know, obviously had your own yeah. separate career, careers and identities. Um, how how did you guys come together back then? What was the idea oh, behind that? Look, it was kind of weird. When we first started, Moonman and I both had, we didn't know each other, but we'd both mixed in the acting circles. And so we had a lot of mutual friends. Um, and also Mooney went to Whitefriars college where I played football uh-huh. at the old boys team. So there's all these people who kind of went, when I started doing comedy, people go, oh, you know, you know, Larry Mooney. And I'm going, no, nah, nah. <laughs> that, that kind of kept happening. And then one night we ended up doing um, a gig at the old elbow grease room yeah. at Nick, in Nicholson's uh, in, in Carlton. And Mooney Carpet introduced himself and, uh, you know, he's a very urbane, charismatic character. And I went, you're an interesting fellow. And then we started, it was really interesting. There was one day he came up to me at the back room at the ESPY and he went, Damien, um, I'm getting the feeling that you share a similar opinion that most of the people in this room are fuckwits. <laughs> <laughs> it was that classic like tryout under the afternoon where there's just all this nervous energy and you've got the, the people who've been around for too long and the, the people just there to rip the beers out of the ESPY and... Um, <laughs> It was really cute. Then just after that, I'd I'd got, I'd been to Edinburgh that year. I'd won a trip with my first character that I created, Roman. And I remember talking to Susan Proven, the director of the comedy festival, and she she said, "What are you going to do next?" And I went, "I don't know. I'll probably do a comedy festival show." And she went, "Yeah, don't do it on your own." <laughs> <laughs> As in, you know, share an hour or whatever. Right. So Mooney came up to me and he goes, "What do you reckon we do?" A, show together and that stage literally could have just been we'd do half hour of stand up each just share the bill so we started going and sitting at Mario's in Fitzroy and just talking getting to know each other and then slowly through that we were commenting on the world that we found ourselves in we were both outsiders to it I came from teaching background Mooney had had multiple highly interesting jobs customs dog handling debt collecting he was I just found him fascinating so we have these long conversations and then go off to our separate jobs. And so the show that we first created was a response to that. We created this show called We've Not Been Ourselves. And it was a in kind of flashback show where we were these guys in our 60s who were doing a, a successful but on-the-nose sitcom. Um, but both of them had been cutting-edge stand-ups when they, were, when they were young. And it kept flashing back to their younger days of their early gigs doing, you know, Hens nights and um, and we create a whole lot of tropes, including the cliche brothers, who are these guys who are just kind of like kind of do improv. Be like, oh, give us a topic, any topic, what sewing machines? Oh, how weird are sewing machines? Sewing machines can get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, we just we had a ball doing it, but the show was a mess. Like it was an absolute mess, but but there was something there. And we realized that that classic thing of one plus one equals an infinitely different and unpredictable number. And um, it was a really great growing experience for both of us, I think. But we both had our own careers going different directions. And you're right, we weren't a duo in the classic sense. We did start doing like a few corporates together and we'd have like a bit of sketchy stuff that we'd throw together, but um, it was never our main main meal. Uh, what was it that got you into stand-up in the first place? Where did you start? Um, I was kind of just ticking off a list, really. I, I was doing a graduate diploma in performing arts to augment my teaching career and was becoming a drama teacher. And in the process, I did kind of everything. I did like mask theatre and okay. um, improv was the first one. I was in a uh, I was in a theatre of the oppressed troupe. Have you heard of Theatre no, Press Forum Theatre? Augusta Bawal, who's a um, South American dissident, uh-huh. political and theatre activist, created this form of theatre where you would make up a play based on um, subject matter that was akin to the audience in front of them. So, for, for instance, one of the ones I did was for um, homelessness. So the audience were either social workers or people who'd been, who were clients and or government officials. Uh, and then you play it and then you step back and then you start to play it again and people in the audience can put their hand up and step in and take the place of the protagonist and try and change the course of the action without not magically. It had to, had to kind of stay in the story. So we'd do these, yeah, quite, you know, large. The, the homeless one was really powerful. I mean, it sounds amazing. Mm. But where does this happen? Why don't I know about this? Well, oh, it why still am happens. I not, why am I my... never getting an invite to something that feels <laughs> oh, like, look, it's on the... That feels like the sort of provocative art <laughs> form that I'd know. be interested in. <laughs> Let's do one. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do one now. <laughs> That'd be just great if yeah. like, people were like, uh, what are you doing at next year's comedy festival? And I'm like, well, you know, Damien Cullen. Don't and I have I'd... no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we'll just pick, you know, maybe it's about... Um, Maybe it's about me too in comedy. Oh, yeah. just decided to do that. Yeah. I mean, yes. Wouldn't that be the most tone-deaf thing that you could do in the year 2019? <laughs> two, two blokes. <laughs> two, two white guys <laughs> talking about the Me Too movement. Yeah, playing and playing female roles. So yeah, playing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Another two jobs that didn't go to women in comedy. <laughs> uh, we could kill comedy and that art form. So okay, so you did, uh, but that didn't... So I, did obs- hate, I did hate... But you did that and didn't go, well, I'm going to turn this into my career and no. you did mask theatre and you didn't go, I'm going to turn this into no. my career. I just so, kept trying stuff. So yeah. where did stand-up fall into it? Um, it ended up falling in kind of accidentally. I was at the ESPY on a Sunday meeting a mate uh-huh. who I'd lived with in Japan and he was running late, which he was wont to do. So I was kind of almost half expecting it. And I didn't, I knew nothing. I did not know that tryout comedy existed. Open mic comedy, didn't know it was a thing. I'd only ever seen, and I hadn't seen that much either. I'd only seen kind of professionals who'd, who'd been doing it for a bit. And I wandered into the Gershwin room for um, the waiting room, as it was called. And um, I remember Steve Bedwell was MC. Is that right? Bedders was rolling in between. He would have increasingly failing tryouts. Yeah. He would have been doing his classic Bedders things of that era, though. He would have been doing a, a nice House of Skulls, Sir Don. 
and he would have been doing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you remember. Yeah, that was. Uh, but he's, I, you've well, got his set list. this is where I started. Like, yeah. so Steve Bedwell hosted the first gig I ever did, yeah, which right. was in that room, and uh, he was great at hosting that room. That was the reason he did it. But he had some classics. He had one about getting sunburnt, which was like, "How burnt am I?" I remember oh, that. I remember that. And yeah. the other one, the, the other bit, the <laughs> nice house of skulls that um, was about uh, how. Uh, you could get away with terrible shit. Sports people, it was maybe an OJ thing yeah. or something like that. But the idea was the better the sports person you were, the more we'd let you get away with. And so <laughs> if we found like Donald Bradman with a basement full of skulls, we'd be like, nice house of skulls, Sir Don. <laughs> that was the joke. It's a good bit. Yeah, it's a good bit, good right? Bit, yeah. yeah um, was... Anyway, they were all terrible. And do you remember a guy called Jack Sims? Yeah, absolutely. So Jack was on that day and... Kind of hard to describe, Jack. He was around the scene for a while. He had um, he had that thing that most comics lack, just absolute self-belief yeah. and kind of weird, kind of likeable cockiness, but no material. And he was just strutting around, just, you know, doing his bit. And I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to do this. So I put my name down, um, got in contact with Trevor Hoare, who I saw last week. Is that right? Oh, How's Trev? Is Trev he right? Trev is going all right, yeah. I mean, for you know a guy... what he does, where he lives? He lives up in, um, he lives up in the Macedon Ranges, and he, he basically care, is the caretaker of Arthur Streeton's estate. Is that right? The place up there called Blomfontein, which is still owned by the Streeton family. And Kev, Trev lives there and looks after it. Well, it's a Trevor Hoare to explain this to people who aren't Yeah, we, we are really because <laughs> we're catch we're up. both having a yeah. real moment of like picturing. I'm having <laughs> oh. a real romantic, like you know, yeah. going back to like when I had to ring up Trev for gigs and yeah. yeah, and you'd have to check his diary and like you know, um, uh, a guy who looked like he'd lived a life even 25 years yeah. ago. Um, uh, so Trevor Hall was the the guy who booked this room. The S, well, he booked the uh, SB Comedy in SB general, Comedy, didn't he? Yeah. And they had two things. So, so there was Sunday afternoons into evening, which was the sort of you know open mic or tryout or new comics, and then there was Tuesday night, which was their sort of more headliner. Yeah, pros graduating night. from the Sunday yeah. to the Tuesday was the was the. So there was the a trick. clear graduation process. Though. Yeah, it was absolutely. like an AFL club having a reserves team. You know, yeah, you, know, you could go if I'm good enough in this. Yeah, I'll get to. Being that one, yeah, and you didn't—you never know knew whether to ask or not. No, and I just remember Trev just going, "Yeah, Dave, I reckon you're right for Tuesdays." <laughs> he tapped me on the shoulder early on in my career too, and he went, "Dame, yeah, two get through every year. You're one of them." <laughs> like into the into the industry, he said, "Yeah, they're yeah." Good. So um yeah, so that's how I started. I just kind of and I just started doing. So when did you did you so you did your first gig at the SB though? Yep. I, I mean, I'm fascinated. So what did you do? I did I did stand up. So it was just me. Um, it was awful. Uh, I often talk about this when I do workshops with students, and um, because they always want to know your worst gig story. Absolutely. And um, I had the you know the other thing is you. Everyone has this perception of what stand-up is, but it, that perception cannot be accurate until you've done it. And this is not to say that people don't know what it is, but it's not till you get on stage, you go, oh, this is what it is. Yeah. Oh, this is different. Like, I've done improv. I've done theatre of the oppressed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, which is also you, largely improvised. Let's not forget your mask work. <laughs> yes. Um, 
And I walked out and I'd written a script and I got out on the stage and I got to the mic. I hadn't even worked out whether to take the microphone uh, in or out, which yeah. is a big philosophical. You're largely a mic in. I am a mic in performer, but no, I wasn't always. Noise, yeah. No, I, 2009, I became a mic, oh, microphone okay. in performer. Yeah. I remember it distinctly. I went from, um, I did a show at the Opera House called uh, Willosophy, which is the name of this podcast, but separate things. Um, uh, hated it. Um, people like that show, but I had a headset mic on and I was pacing from side to side. And yeah, the thing right. that I, cause I have no theater training and no, so I just had to learn how to do it. And I had my, the way my brain works is it's the reason I can't talk in a fucking sentence is that there's just a million things going on at once. Yep. And you know, I used to think that I had to match my energy on stage had to match the energy of the ideas that were popping into my head. Yeah, right. So my act used to be so big and loud and, you know, really sort of like, because I was like, this is how it hit, this is how it's coming to me in my head. It yeah. explode, the thoughts explode when I'm on stage in my head. I felt like I had to, you know, be kind of pacing and, you know, but I, so yeah, I had that. Right. Whereas I watched this thing and I was like, oh, I've got it completely wrong. So yep. now I literally have a spot, you know, like a, a proper, like, you know, spot middle of the stage a straight microphone stand and I never take the microphone out of the stand and it, I anchor myself. Yeah. Right. So the idea now is that, you know, I'm, at, I'm physically anchored and then you just let the, let, the let brain explode. Yeah. You know, you explode it's, from the sort of like the, you know, the shoulders up. It's completely individual, but incredibly important that, that craft and awareness of what you're, what, what you're doing. And mine varies because my work varies so much varies between, you know, quite static to incredibly physical to jumping in and out of characters. So I... But I hadn't done any mask work. I yeah, hadn't I done, So I didn't have that training. <laughs> yeah. What I'm saying is I've got, I've got, a, I've got my head of the pack. Nearly. I've done, I've done uh, lycra bag movement yeah. as well. Uh, um, so uh, you, so yeah, your I first gig. Couldn't, couldn't work out. With, I couldn't, then I couldn't get it out because I was yeah. shaking so much. And is Steve Bedwell hosting that day? Or is someone um, else hosting? Marty Shigold? Um, if I I've, under hypnosis, I would remember right, but who you don't was hosted, remember. but I don't remember who was hosted. Okay, interesting. And uh, paused to pull the microphone out, and I looked down, and the the Gershwin room had a very high stage, yep. and it was a very dark, even though it was it could be forty five degrees outside, but yep. it just felt middle like of the day. It would always the way they it was dark, dark, <laughs> and Matisse rose bottles with a candle. Yeah, and there were two youngish guys sitting at the table, right down. And I just happened to look at them, and they both just, uh, as if in uh, in reflection, just turned to look at each other. And I both saw the mouth. Fuck. <laughs> I went, oh, they hate me, and I haven't even said like I haven't even said anything. They could just feel my pain and my nerves. Yeah, and then I froze and went, oh, and I said something. Then only half a sentence, and it made it sound like I'd said something and was expecting a laugh, and they kind of just they started muttering to each other again, and then it was just all I could, all I could hear was the glasses being cleaned at the back of the room. I can't remember what I did that day. All I remember, I've got a couple of notes, and one of the headlines was "toilet poltergeist," and I think it was I think it was about you know you know you go to the toilet and your Asta um, calendar's been changed. <laughs> <laughs> and there's always pubic hair on the seat. 
someone just pulled that out. I don't know. That's all I can remember. So, but I, I had the, the blessing the next day. I was starting rehearsal on a play, um, bit of Greek theatre. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Greek, it was with New Theatre. I don't know if you know, New Theatre uh, um, uh, <laughs> kind of began in the Communist Party in the 1930s in Melbourne and Sydney. They're, they're bigger in Sydney than they are Melbourne. So I was doing like a, you know, turgid um, kind of canate. Uh, Timberlake Wurtenberger is the playwright. It's It's basically... Story of um, uh, and not Antigone. Anyway, one of those, <laughs> and all the actors were on stage all the time, <laughs> just sitting around the back. Anyway, but the, <laughs> and there was a circle drawn on the stage. So when you were in the circle, that's when you were acting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, as an opening exercise, the director made everyone tell a story. Of something that happened to them in the past week, and I told my story of dying on stage, and I fucking killed. And the actors were like leaning forward, just like I think actors have a particular fascination with stand up too. Yeah. Just go, oh, what you did your first gig yesterday? What was it like? And I just told the story, and then I ended up doing a gig, a benefit for the theatre company. During it, everyone was just doing sketches and whatever, and I just thought I might just do stand up. I remember I did twenty five minutes. Like not, you know, when you don't know that like 25 materials is heaps, but none of it was tested and it was all over the shop, but it worked and I went, ah, I'll have another crack. And then the next gig, next gig I did at the SB went quite well. I remember Matt King coming up to me afterwards and Matt was one of the other few people I knew in the scene and he went, gateway to snow pea country, genius. Just repeated one of my jokes back to me. I was like, ah, this is good. Uh, it's interesting to me to hear all this because, um, I, you know, your work has always <clears throat> sat within and yeah, outside comedy, yeah, like traditional stand-up. Uh, no, the nor the kind of normal cliched example of what people thought stand-up was because there are so many people who are doing things that are not that. But you know, there's yeah. a very you know. Uh, and as someone who probably works more in the area of that tra- that traditional kind of approach, um, uh, I'm so fascinated by uh, different approaches. Like, yeah. you know, all the comedy that I love the most. If I go and see someone who does comedy like I do comedy, like it's like, what, it's why I empathize with people who don't like me. Like, because I really, I do. Yeah. Because I go, I'm not sure that I would like me either. Yeah. Like, there's a style of comedy that I do. And it's the only sort of comedy that I know how to do. This is my comedy. Yeah. But I'm not, as a, a consumer, I'm not consuming people who make comedy the way that I make comedy. Yeah. I am consuming people who make things that I c- couldn't make and wouldn't know how to make because... So I've seen a, a bunch of your shows yeah, over yeah. the years. And one of the reasons I always go and see your shows is because, A, because I know that it's going to be good, but B, because I can enjoy it because I'm not thinking about what you're doing. Yeah. I'm just watching you do something. I go and see someone like me. I start to go, oh, he's doing this and then yeah. he's going to do this. And even if you're not trying to do that, your brain's doing it regardless. Whereas you've always been doing something that incorporated a whole lot of other things. But... This might be a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought you're as like you know talented and funny as probably you know any of the people you know who, who came through comedy at the time that we did. Um, 
but what you do probably hasn't been as commercial as yeah, what yeah. some of those other people have done. Yeah, I'm trying to find like the yeah, right no, way no, to no, put that. But I completely, yeah, I, I reckon I can answer it without you finishing thank it. Thank you. That would be good because <laughs> I, I don't. If you know look, what I'm asking, yeah. Then... Look, early on, it's a case of I tried a lot of things when I first started character. You know, just absurdity. I threw everything at it, and then because of that, I sat back and went, "I could kind of do all of it." Like I could, I took. It took the longest journey was to try and be comfortable as myself as a stand-up on stage. But by that point, I already realised I had something that others didn't that I could create character, and then also then create a narrative with heaps of characters, and so I became just a lot more interested in that and. And it was setting me apart, but it also made me less employable. Like from the point point of view of the normal trajectory of a stand up in this country is you get good at stand up, and then the media options open up. You know, yeah. radio, doing panel shows and that sort of stuff. And so for a long time, I kind of got overlooked by most of those panel shows because they went, "He does that weird thing," or someone would see me doing a gig when I was dressed up in a liturgical dance gown and. That was their opinion of me because I was never the same thing very often. So I guess yeah, it was it was it was a conscious choice because I don't think I, I I don't think I could have just kept doing straight stand up because my mind doesn't think like that. My mind even in stand up, I I break out into character. Um, I try and tell things in in slightly different ways. So then it's just the industry then, you know, or and me, how do I market myself? And I managed to kind of create a career out of it that has just occasionally loitered in, into the <laughs> media and TV, you know, like it's like, oh, here he is again. I just go, oh, there he is. Oh, he's, oh, there he's gone again. Um, and relentlessly toured to the smallest places in Australia. But also when you say not commercial – what I've kind of found though that as I've learned how to make things have a much broader appeal than probably most stand-ups, like the stuff that I create can go into the Newman Workers Club in Outback Pilbara, can go into the Hayfield Hall, can go to you know I was in Pinnacle last week, sixty-eight k's west of Mackay in a theatre built by Amateur Theatre Company in the mid-70s in the middle of a cane field. So I've kind of worked out how to do that and um, I love it. I really I really love that kind of – so it's kind of interesting having the film now. All of that test stuff has come back into a film, which is going to have – it's going to be quirky and it's funny, it's got a lot of heart, but it still has to have broad appeal. It has to make, you know, the vice-captain of the Walkers Tigers like it as much as – Con from the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre. So, uh, you you make a film. Yeah. How do you convince people that? Because here's the thing: uh, Australians know this about Australian film, but maybe mm. some other people listening don't. Um, Australians don't tend to watch Australian films. Certainly, 
you know, predominantly in the last few years, unless yours is predominantly about a, a dog, uh, then, you know, they're not really going out to support Australian Distrustful. films. Distrustful, yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. They're a little, we're a little sus on yeah. our own, uh, getting high on our own supply. So I can understand the idea of you wanting to tell the story, but how did you convince other people that it was an idea that you could, like, how, how does that happen? Yeah, right. Um. Right from the beginning, ever since I've talked to other people and we talked before about um, getting other people involved, every person that was spoken to about this idea loves the idea straight away. So you need, uh, you need a hook and this has got a hook. It's got, it's got different worlds going on. You know, tick the box of the funding bodies because it's got refugees in it. Um, it's a regional story and the regional... Got a good double dip on the funding there, didn't you? You got funded to write it yeah. and then you got funded to... <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I don't know. If we haven't had to do too much hard selling. Okay. The hard selling now is happening for the distributors to, um, to break through to the cinema houses, the big, the big chains. Largely because, yeah, the same thing. You know, there's been a few Australian comedies in a row that haven't gone very well, um, and it's hard to convince them. Usually, once they see it, we were we were screened at the Australian International Movie Convention, and there was a little bit of like, oh, thank God, right. <laughs> oh, thank God, thank God, a good one, oh, bit of relief. But even then, they still kind of go, oh, okay, do we show the Marvel thing or do we give this a crack? So, um. So what are the so what do you, what happens now then because I think I'm very interested in this because when I speak to you, uh, your so is the the Melbourne Film Festival premiere the indie one the well, whatever's this weekend Saturday yep. is that the first time it's ever shown in in front of a proper audience proper audience yeah, yeah apart from test audiences yeah and then we go into cinemas from the thirtieth of August um, with our big premiere in Wagga in Wagga. Yeah, because we shot in Wagga. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd love to come, but... I know. Come to Miff. <laughs> okay. I'm glad that you shot it in Wagga. Yeah, it's, it's good that really strange. It's when good you... that they've got another story. Well, when <laughs> Something you... else they can concentrate on. When that on. story happened to you, because I have a great affection for Wagga, because <laughs> I, I was in another film that was filmed there. Yeah. The director, Mark, is from there, which is yeah. why we're filming there. The town haven't, couldn't have been lovelier about supporting the film. Multicultural Council in Wagga have been amazing... We're filming in outlying towns mainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so the premiere's there and then we're in cinemas. Um, and yeah, it's been a slow By the way, process. I should point out just for the record, I have nothing against Wagga no. either. The people of Wagga were great to me. They were a great crowd that night. The police treated me well. Everybody in Wagga was great. We had a little issue between Sydney and Wagga. Sydney and Wagga. <laughs> but yeah, the yeah. people of Wagga, someone said Isn't to me, it? next time you go to the Wagga airport, we have flashbacks. And I was like, I didn't get inside the airport. I made it to the tarmac and then straight to the police station. I have no idea what the Ironically, airport looks like. Wagga has got the best coffee in an airport in Australia. They did not grab me a cup. <laughs> oh, that's great. But we all have them. We all. I think. I don't think there's a comedian alive. That yours is probably the most extreme. Who has a, a compromised relationship with you? Mine's our rat. Um, that could almost be a show. But, uh, what hap- tell me what happened in our uh, look I or was, can you not tell me no I can it's just it's quite a long story so I'll, I'll rip through it yeah I was on tour it was the first night of my tour 
and my dad, my mum had not passed away not long beforehand, and so I said, I'll, I'll take you on the tour. Which Where do you want to go? And he went, oh, and I showed him the list, and he said, oh, I wouldn't mind going to Horsham. Um, I was also kind of looking after my dogs. My partner and I had split up not long beforehand. She had gone overseas, so I was looking after dogs. Anyway, I had Dad, and Dad's quite elderly. Dad passed away not long ago, and... Um, this was the time I went, I can't take him on tour with me anymore. <laughs> anyway, we're driving along and we got pulled up uh, just out of Ararat and just a routine check. Guys looked at my license, comes back and he goes, oh, you're driving an unregistered car. And I went, what? Am I? Anyway, he goes back and goes, yeah, it's not registered. And I said, mate, I, I'm almost positive I've paid this, but we were in an internet dead hole. I couldn't check on the phone. Anyway, he hands me a $600 fine. And then um, I'm stuck then because I'm not supposed to drive it because I've got, but I've got my elderly father and two fucking dogs in the back. And uh, anyway, he goes, look, uh, yeah, you, you shouldn't drive this, but I'm going that way and pointed right. south. Like, don't you drink me? Good on you, mate. Thank you. So I drove off. I get just before Ararat. My car starts to make a weird noise, like a clunking, and then sirens appear behind me all at once. And I'm about 50 minutes before a service station. Different police officer. He goes, uh, my colleagues radiated and said you're driving an unregistered vehicle. So he just stitched me up. Got another six hundred dollar fine. The car broke down. The other cop was completely unhelpful. I'm stuck in the service station with my elderly father and these dogs. Couldn't get to Horsham to accommodation. I'm ringing around. No one would take me in a motel because I had a dog. Right, yeah, got dogs. Couldn't get there anyway. And eventually, I just I just exploded at one bloke. It was he was at a caravan park, seven k's out of town, and he I told him the story, and he went, "No, nah, I can't help you." And I went, "You mean you won't help me?" And I'm I'm not an angry man. Will you no. test to that? Yeah, I just kind of just loaded into him, just white fury, just going, yeah. "You're meaning to tell me you're going to leave a war hero on the side of the road, two pedigree dogs." And you don't let them stay in your shitbox little caravan in the fucking shitbox middle of nowhere and just went off. And then he went, yeah, I reckon we can help you out. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was just a series of stuff. I called a taxi. Someone else took the taxi. um, Got the car. The guy came and towed the car and was completely unhelpful. It's like just still trying to get things out. So I had the whole, all my show props, the dogs, dad inside. Dad, I got Dad a coffee and he kept opening the door to, to um, the emergency door to come and say, come and have your coffee, but the, the alarm would go off every time he opened the door. Oh, no. uh, and then I got ripped off by the garage that it went to. They put in fake parts. So hour at night. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, it, we do need to finish up soon because uh, you have another appointment, but there's a couple of things I really want to ask you. Um, firstly, let's tell everybody to go and see the film. So, and mm. what can they do? So, people, I guess, like if people have listened this far, yep. I hope they're really interested in going to see the film. So, what's the best thing that they can do to help make sure stream. that you yeah, know? Yeah, well, I guess it's true of any film, but the the film industry works by uh, um, opening weekends. So, if no one goes on the opening first two weekends. It'll just get pulled off screens and yeah. it won't it won't grow. So August 30 and September 6th seem to be the two big ones. Um, yeah, just get in early. I know it's you know it's a pain, but don't wait for it to come on. It's going to be on Qantas and Virgin soon. Don't wait for that. Yeah, go, go and see it. it. 
Go and see it. Have you? Well, I assume you've seen it now. Like at this stage, you must have sat through. And you I not, sat through but, a lot in the early edit. Yeah. Um, but I've kind of stopped myself for last during color grading and sound grading, and I, I was involved in the soundtrack, but not. So, but I haven't. So I haven't seen it all the way through for ages. Okay. I've kind of stopped myself from. And will you sit and watch it with the audience on Saturday night? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it will feel a bit like a new film to me, with the proper because previously it was just all holding music and. Um, yeah, not colour graded. The sound will be heat spinner. So, yeah. So but also, you're going to get to do something that you've not got to do, which is sit in the audience of your show. Yeah. And like, I mean, I know yes. that it's... Yes. Right? Yeah. But, you know, like, I mean, everybody has seen you do this show and you are literally going to... I mean, it's as close as you're going to kind of get to actually being in the audience of... One yeah. of your shows. It's a weird... I, I haven't been to any of the test screenings either. They've just kind of happened around me while I've been on tour and stuff. But I was at the MIF Melbourne International Film launch and they'd play the trailer. And for two minutes, I just heard people, yeah, laughing and responding. And it was actually quite surreal. Like it was... I've been, you know, I've been in the cinema when people have been watching me in sure. other films and stuff. But this was like, oh, wow. So, yeah, I've got... Saturday is going to be bizarre, but wonderful. Yeah, so you're looking forward to it. Oh, it's, yeah. Is it so really excited? Yeah, you're excited. Yeah, that because that's interesting to me. Is like how you, how would you feel three days before you know, say the Melbourne Comedy Festival, or just say you know some major run yeah. of like a show that you're going to do? Do you feel excited or do you feel nervous? Uh, mainly, mainly excited, but it's a, there's, there's more nerves because mm. you know it's like you're still you're still making it. You're making it up until you get on stage. And then when the show finishes, you're still making it again because you're trying to get it right. Um, there's a bit of there's more relief after that first one, but this is different because all the making yeah. has happened, and so now it's just can't change it now. Change it, just <laughs> talking about it, you know. We, if, if it's a bit slow in, like you know, a third yep, of the way through, you like, can't get, just jump up the front and start adding some extra lines yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, just distract people during this. What if I said this? Would this have gone better? <laughs> Uh, so that's, I, and I guess you'll, yeah, I'll forget about all of that. I'll forget about all the things that in the edit going, oh, I want that or I want that or jokes that have been cut out and stuff. I think that's been the thing. You fight over, you know, scraps a bit. There's some great jokes that have been removed just for pacing and stuff. But no one knows they're not there. And the response so far has been a much broader response, like people just loving the story and the ideas and the heart behind it. And that's much more important than people saying, yeah, oh, fuck, I love that joke. Uh, so uh, there's a question I always ask at the end. Uh, normally we more naturally lead up to it, but today we just talked about this and I like this. Um, uh, you mentioned that you were raised Catholic, spent, you know, 30 yep. years in the in the Catholic system. Uh, are you still religious at all? Or do you have no. some sort? So the, which brings us to the question. Uh <laughs> and I understand. I'm culturally Catholic. Yeah, yeah, right. But so, what do you think happens when we die? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And so, how does that affect your life? Um, I guess it makes me just live it, um, without thinking beyond. You know, there's no, there's no other redemption or place to be. It does. It doesn't make me more selfish. It probably makes me less selfish. But that's interesting to me because we started by talking about empathy and we're going to finish by talking about it because the cliche 
when you say to somebody, you know, that because I'm the same, I, you know, and, and often I think this is what, you know, this podcast is about more than anything is the idea that like I myself believe that, you know, if I believe we're insignificant. I was watching this Brian Cox thing on, you know, literally just this thing about yeah. where we are in the universe and the statistical improbability of us being, and I believe all that. And I believe that, you know, we probably don't even understand time as it exists. And yeah. I believe that when we die, we're just going to be dead and all those sort of things. So if you believe that's true, then why is it this? Why, why yeah. when I asked you what your philosophy is, did you say empathy? Because if you were going to look at that in a clinical way, the people would argue going, well, if you think you're just going to be dead when you die, why be empathetic in your life? Why not just go, I'll take everything from me and who cares about anybody else? Well, it's what you draw enrichment from in life. And I draw enrichment from the happiness of the people around me. It's impossible to be happy in isolation. Um, and dead straight line selfishness, you know, unless you're a narcissist, it is impo- it's just impossible to be happy just thinking about yourself. It's great. Love it. What a great place to end. Uh, hey, mate, thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. If people want to, like, you know, learn more about the film or follow your work or yeah, any of those sort of things, where, where's their best sort of, you know, first um, place to find it? The Merger Movie Facebook page. There's also a, a website which is, has similar handles. Um, there's a Bodgy Creek Football Club podcast as well, which I do, which I haven't done this year. It's in it's in uh, hiatus. We've You've had some other shit on. With some issues. Um, but it's a it's it's kind of it's it's the um extreme version of Audrey Creek. It's kind of gone off on its own wonderful tangents. Um yeah, and Damien Callan, uh, comedian on Facebook and Twitter. Mate, thank you very much for doing Pleasure. the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it.